From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, October 22nd. I'm Marco Werman. Foreign policy takes center stage with a final presidential debate tonight. Many important issues will be discussed, just not necessarily the ones that will dominate the agenda in years to come. If you look at debates and what the candidates thought that they would be dealing with and then actually what they dealt with, they've been very different phenomena. And later, the Libyan town where Gaddafi loyalists keep on fighting. Benimoli just insisted on being stubborn and they do not want to admit defeat. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? Is it all in the DNA, or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius waiting to be discovered? Find out on Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Wednesday night at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Another presidential debate tonight, and this time foreign policy is the topic. Given how the last debate went, it's safe to say there will be another round of questions about what happened last month in Benghazi, Libya. There will, of course, be other topics that Mitt Romney and Barack Obama discussed tonight, and we'll return to that in a moment. First, we stay in Libya. It's a holiday there tomorrow, the first anniversary of the country's official declaration of liberation from the Gaddafi regime. Yet the head of Libya's Congress recently declared that the liberation of Libya isn't complete yet. And that's because one town in western Libya, Bani Walid, still remains a stronghold for Gaddafi loyalists. Marine Olivezi has the story. The town of Bani Walid rests high in a landscape of small canyons, ridges and winding roads. Last fall, locals in the pro-Qaddafi stronghold held the high ground for weeks before giving in, but they never quite embraced Libya's transition process. Bani Walid just insisted on being stubborn, and they do not want to admit defeat. That's Rida, an activist who fought against Qaddafi's regime with guns and tweets. His family hails from Bani Walid, but Rida says he can't set foot there because he's still seen as a traitor. Other towns that sided with Qaddafi during the uprising have moved on, he says, but not Bani Walid. And he blames rebel forces for some of the lingering tension. problem is uh, a lot of the rebel fighters that went in went in with a vengeance, and they uh, looted in a way that's provocative. I mean, okay, there's looting for guns, there's looting for money, there's looting for cars, but there are certain things that shouldn't be taken away. Clothes, for example, were stolen, just to make a point. That further stoked locals' resentment, and Bani Walid became a magnet for the last of the Gaddafi loyalists at home and abroad. All of people who are supporting Gaddafi, trying to back to Bani Walid, they make Bani Walid like a capital to support Gaddafi. Mohamed Septi serves as a field coordinator between the Libyan military, Libyan intelligence and brigades on the ground. He says Gaddafi loyalists who found refuge in Chad, Niger and Algeria at the end of the uprising trickled back to Bani Walid over the past year. 
Septi says the town now harbors up to 400 people wanted by Libya's new authorities. Confrontation loomed for months, and then came the spark. Omran Chaban, the young fighter credited in the capture of Gaddafi last year, was kidnapped in July by Bani Walid militiamen. Omran's father says his son and two others from Misrata were passing through the area of Bani Walid when they were abducted. The details of their capture remain murky, but Omran's uncle says there's no doubt about the motive. The only one reason to catch Omran and his friend that they catch Gaddafi. No any other claim for them. When he was released, he was unconscious, his body showing signs of beatings. He died soon after. The Libyan Congress ordered the arrest of those accused of capturing and torturing Omran. Local authorities in Bani Walid refused to hand over the suspects, and the hunt for Omran's killers turned into a full-on siege. So here we are at a military checkpoint, passing through towards Bani Walid. We can see some pickups uh, on the move uh, with young men in fatigues inside, anti-aircraft battery on the truck, uh, and these guys are heading towards the front line. Coming out of that road is about two dozen cars with civilians. They tell us they're fleeing the, the shelling that has intensified over the past few days. Khaith Hadi escapes town before sunrise. He says the situation inside is dire, with a shortage of food, fuel and medicine. And he says the shelling seems indiscriminate. At least 30 people were killed over the weekend as negotiation efforts stalled. Pro-government brigades say they're closing in on Bani Walid, but many fear Libya's fledgling authorities face a lose-lose outcome. Crushing the town with heavy firepower would make them look bad, but if they let Bani Walid's hardliners dictate their terms, they'll come off weak. For The World, I'm Marine Olivesi, on the road to Bani Walid, Libya. How the U.S. handles the changes still sweeping through the Middle East is one of the main topics on the agenda for tonight's final presidential debate. People in the region will be tuning in with their own questions in mind, though. We asked an activist in Syria what he'd like to hear. My name is Amr al Farik. I'm an activist living in Syria. Currently, I'm in the northern parts of Aleppo. I would like to hear from both candidates clear and honest statements, not uh, general answers that will just give only positive impression, but with specifics, with practical steps that will be followed after any of the candidates win this election. I'm really hoping to see what the international community will be able to contribute to help us Syrians not go into that dilemma, similar to the way Lebanon, for example, went through. We don't want to go there. I would like to see Syria as a stable country, and I'm really concerned of any ethnic or armed conflict in my country after the fall of the Assad criminal regime. That was Amr al-Zadek, an activist in Aleppo, Syria, telling us what he'd like to hear from Mitt Romney and Barack Obama tonight. Like Syria, the foreign policy issues the candidates end up discussing at the debate will no doubt be important ones. But history tells us they're not necessarily the same ones that will test whoever occupies the White House for the next four years. Juliette Kayyem is a columnist on foreign affairs and national security for the Boston Globe. Her column today is titled, Is the Foreign Policy Debate Irrelevant? And Juliette, what has history shown? History has shown that theories are interesting and the theories that candidates debate uh, might be illuminating uh, to the electorate, but that they are rarely the issues 
that will test a president. You know, the next president, whether it's Obama or Romney, is going to inherit Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq. But if you look at modern debates and what the candidates thought that they would be dealing with and then actually what they dealt with, uh, they've been very different phenomenons. So take us back four years. What did President Obama, then candidate Obama, say in 2008 that has proved irrelevant? Well, you know, the thing that tested Obama first that people tend to forget is this strange flu known as H1N1, which Mm. came about in his early days. I call that a foreign affairs issue because it was coming in from Mexico and and his administration got a lot of pressure to close borders as if we could. But just this notion of a, a health threat and a biological threat and potentially mass casualties in the United States was the first crisis that he had to deal with on a global scale. Now, you've been following the the campaign, Juliet. Tweeze apart for us what the candidates' statements or beliefs kind of indicate about how they'll handle any situation out there in the world. Well, okay, Romney's much more ideological and sort of has this theory of the world, which is you sort of view everything through the lens of terrorism and counterterrorism. And so the debate in the United States about Benghazi are really being debated through the frame of this war on terror. And and the, the, the Bush people are his big advisors. On the other side is the Obama doctrine, which he's much more tactical and so views each country as a case of first impression so that in his mind and in his team's mind, the fact that we went into Libya but not Syria, the tactics are justified because they look at each situation differently. Uh, what we don't know is sort of what's the the emergency that is going to happen, you know, looking at this weekend and what happened last week in Cuba and whether Fidel Castro is or isn't alive, you know, for United States policymakers, that's a huge deal, not only because of Florida, but this concern about mass migration of Cubans, which would be a huge crisis for either Obama or Romney, depending on who was in charge at the time. Right. And of course, whatever big emergency emerges next, ideology and tactics will get completely renovated on the fly. That's exactly right. I mean, the best example, of course, is uh, the second President Bush, when he was in office before 9-11, what was he thinking about? And he met with the then President Vicente Fox five times before 9-11. His orientation was this hemisphere. It was consistent with the fact he had been governor of Texas. And then, of course, 9-11 changes not only us, but also then we go into Afghanistan. And then two years later, we're in Iraq. So his foreign policy debate against Gore was thrown out the window because of 9-11. Boston Globe columnist Juliet Kayyem. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Speaking of unpredictable, who would have thought that President Obama would lose his luster among Turks? The president's first overseas trip in 2009 ended with a stop in Istanbul where he was greeted like a rock star. And one famous bakery even created a special portrait of the president made out of baklava. The three-year-old dessert still looks fresh thanks to the wonders of food coloring and a weekly glazing of sticky syrup. But as Matthew Brunwasser reports from Istanbul, the dessert isn't attracting the interest it once did. What's the size of a large cookie pan made out of baklava and looks like a lumpy version of the famous Hope portrait of Barack Obama? The baraklava. The idea was cooked up here in the Gyulolu baklava shop in Istanbul. In the shop's six decades in business, only three other historical figures, all Turks, have been so honored. Owner Nadir Gyulu says the portraits require enormous craftsmanship. 
Under the command of one chief with five assistants, it takes 10 days to make one. In each piece of baklava, there are 55 layers of pastry. It's all handmade and it's very hard. Obama's big ears made it very difficult, but we managed. Gyulu doesn't like politics, but he says he and other Turks had high expectations of Obama and they were dashed. As a master Turkish chef, I made this baklava to show the newly elected leader of the world that if you eat sweet, you will talk sweet. I was hoping for peace because when someone eats baklava, their serotonin level increases, and that increases happiness. But he misunderstood, and he brought war instead of peace. The shop smells sweet of butter and syrup, an ambiance not conducive to talking politics. Turks were clearly excited by Obama's visit in April of 2009. But as Chef Gulu says, disappointment soon set in. Mechanic Enes Durmuş. When Obama first came to power, all the countries of the world cheered him and declared him an angel. But I said then, and I say now, it doesn't matter who's in power. The foreign policy of the United States will never change. Indeed. Obama did try to tamp down the high expectations during his visit. He said that U.S. foreign policy is a big ship which takes a long time to turn around. Aiten Suju, a biology teacher, says she'd still vote for Obama. I think he solved problems which other presidents had been unable to, like health care reform. His own mother suffered from cancer and had trouble getting medicine. He cares about how the lower classes of society feel. He feels close to those people. Another customer, Aiku Chalukshu, says he supports Romney, but for a different reason. Obama is too close to Israel. Even though they say that Obama is a Muslim, I actually think that Romney will have closer relations with Turkey than with the Jews. With the Syrian civil war heating up on Turkey's southern border and escalating attacks by Kurdish militants, Turks have not been focusing much on the U.S. elections. Just ask anyone at the Gulolu shop. Most will tell you they're much more interested in baklava than the baraklava. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. You can see pictures of the Obama baklava portrait at theworld.org. You're listening to The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The presidential debates have been getting increasingly feisty, but does that make for an effective debate? The world's Jason Margolis got some perspectives on debating from several immigrant high school students in Boston, students who were preparing for their own debates. Many of us who watched the vice presidential debate more than a week ago may have already forgotten most of the specific points the two men made. But what you probably remember is Joe Biden's laugh and incredulous smiling when Paul Ryan was speaking. Was it just rude or an effective debating technique? I put the question to high school senior Ingrid Mile, originally from Albania, and sophomore Safi Farah from Kenya. Personally, I found that entertaining. It made the debate for me more entertaining because I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I would do that whenever my opponents did something just to intimidate them. But, like, worldview and people viewing him, that wasn't, like, a very professional move. Not really. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it wasn't very professional of him to 
to be laughing like that. He showed that he was his personality was like kind of like childish. You know, he he really didn't take it seriously. Like, but but, but was it effective? Yes, I believe it was very effective to show that the other team was saying was like uh, a joke to him. In the first presidential debate, Barack Obama was faulted for being too polite. During the second debate, he often cut off Mitt Romney. Romney returned the favor. And while the media have been busy dissecting the appropriateness of this behavior, Safi Farah thinks American politicians are far from crossing the line. Politicians are more polite over here because they somewhat wait and they have turns. That's often not the case in Cape Verde or Haiti, says Enrique Martins and Julia Alexis. They're Boston students who moved from those two countries a few years back. They are more polite here. In my country, sometimes they get mean with each other, but here they kind of respect each other. They smile and everything. I believe that they're more polite here because in Haiti, people get pretty aggressive about their beliefs. And... Sometimes a debate might turn into a big argument while people don't really get to say what they believe in because others are, it don't really give them a chance to speak up, while here you actually have more of a chance to do that. So of the four men, Obama, Romney, Biden, and Ryan, who was the best debater? I think that Obama stand out for me because everything that... Presentation-wise, I'm not going to lie, Mitt Romney has been like... Pretty good. Um, I think they're all pretty even because from... But how do you really judge a debate? How do these students get evaluated? What matters most, style or substance? There's a point system. So That's Joshua Nixon, a Boston High School debate coach who was speaking to the judges prior to the student debates. He says determining the ultimate winner comes down to one simple metric. Who convinced you more? Because debaters' ultimate job is to convince you of what they're saying is right. And just like in tonight's presidential debate, that is all that ultimately matters. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis in Boston. With Mitt Romney's presidential run, we've heard a lot about the Mormon church, but not so much about the church's international side, particularly its history south of the U.S.-Mexico border, where the Romney family has some ties. So for this story, we head to Provo, Utah. A man there, Fernando Rogelio Gomez, has created a small museum. Reporter Monica Campbell takes us there to see a small slice of the history of Mormons in Mexico. Fernando Rogelio Gomez found the documents buried inside his aunt's house in Mexico. Old books, relics, photographs. Well, these are some of the uh, early members. This is an individual by the name of Narciso Sandoval, the most prolific uh, missionary that Mexico has produced. It was a treasure trove of history about the Mormon church in Mexico. And it convinced Gomez, a 72-year-old retired engineer and devout Mormon from Mexico, to create two museums dedicated to Mexican Mormon history, one in Mexico City and a new one here in Provo, Utah, Mormon heartland. And on a recent weekday afternoon, no other visitors around, Gomez, polite and soft-spoken, is our personal guide. We're going to give a little tour. Gomez's collection houses maps detailing the treks in the 1850s when Brigham Young first sent missionaries to Mexico. And here's what Gomez prizes in his collection, the oldest original copies of the Book of Mormon sent to Mexico. The translation of the first Book of Mormon, it was in preparation of the first missionaries, so they are probably 125 years old now. And then over here we have pictures of the uh, early Mexican saints, Also on display, maps tracing the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints' fast rise in Mexico. These are the first branches that were organized. And this is Mexico today with uh, 
27 missions. There's 12 temples, and they're building another one in Tijuana. You can see it from that picture. That was the whole of Mexico back in 1946. So in 60 years, we have over a million members and missions all over the place. So it's, a, it's really a fantastic history. And Mexican Mormons migrating north brought their faith with them, too. Gomez compares being a Spanish-speaking Mormon in Utah in 1964 to today. It has exploded. There was only one small branch. But today there's probably 35, 40 units just in Utah County. Across the road from the museum at Brigham Young University, Ignacio Garcia is a history professor and a Mexican-American who's been a Mormon bishop. He explains that Latinos are drawn to Mormonism for its tight-knit culture, a contrast to an increasingly distant Catholic church. And he adds another reason why Latinos are drawn to the Mormon church. They still catch on to the pioneer stories, the meaning of a people leaving escaping from a place in which they are oppressed. It's a way to escape mob violence. In the Book of Mormon, there's a mention where people come to this land through the hand of God. I hear it often. You know, we're here because God wants us to be here. This is home. And there was a time when more American Mormons considered Mexico home to proselytize, create colonies, and practice polygamy outlawed in the U.S. And here's where Mitt Romney's heritage enters the scene when his forefathers helped set up colonies in northern Mexico. Gomez holds out two large books on U.S. Mormon genealogy in Mexico. This one right here, I'm sure has. There's Miles Spark Romney, 1843-1904. Yep, they all, all of these people lived in Mexico. This is Colonia Juarez, where the Romneys were as early as 1884, educated and hardworking people. Romney's dad, George, was born in northern Mexico in 1907. Romney's grandparents were polygamists who fled the U.S. government and its ban on plural marriage. But in 1913, Mexico's revolution and its violence drove many of the Romneys back to the U.S. But not all left. Several of Romney's distant relatives still live in northern Mexico today. And they're still there. There's still presence of Romneys in the colonies. If another path had been taken, if Romney's father decided not to leave Mexico, life might have been far different for Mitt Romney. As novelist Hector Tabad recently wrote in Smithsonian Magazine, he might have, quote, been born in Mexico and might be living there today, raising apples and peaches. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in Provo, Utah. Early Spanish editions of the Book of Mormon and other Mormon artifacts, we have a slideshow at theworld.org. Tomorrow, many Latino Mormons in the U.S. are agonizing over the presidential election. Their support for the first-ever Mormon candidate clashes with the Republican stance on immigration. That's tomorrow on The World. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a new CD box set celebrates the 1970s English punk band The Jam. Former frontman Paul Weller isn't sure about all the hoopla. To go back and revisit the band and, and get back together after all that time and to be all of us in our 50s and trying to recapture something would just be ridiculous, you know. We'd look ridiculous and sound ridiculous. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. A ruling by a court in Italy today has stunned the global scientific community. The ruling relates to the 2009 earthquake that devastated the Italian city of L'Aquila, killing more than 300 people. The court found six scientists and one former government official guilty of manslaughter for failing to adequately warn residents about the quake. The seven defendants were all members of a government commission tasked with assessing earthquake risks. All seven were sentenced to six years in prison today. Reporter Megan Williams is in Rome. I mean, scientists, Megan, from around the world have cried foul about this case. They say there's no reliable scientific way to predict earthquakes. What did the ruling say? Well, I mean, certainly the verdict was harsh. So clearly they're giving a very strong message about offering what the judge considered false reassurances. Now, the scientific community has been very concerned because they have, and and certainly the defense based their arguments on the contention that what the court expected was that scientists could predict earthquakes. Now, the prosecution and the judge said, no, it had nothing to do with predicting earthquakes. It had to do with very explicit statements given by the Civil Protection Agency head saying that an earthquake likely wouldn't happen. I mean, this is a man who went on television and told the residents of L'Aquila that it was safe to go back indoors when there were tremors and many people were worried and sleeping outside. So the verdict addresses that issue. How often do experts warn residents in Italy that an earthquake may be coming or that or talk about earthquakes, period. I mean, is there an early warning system? Well, certainly in L'Aquila, I mean, that's an incredibly seismic region. I spoke this evening with Vincenzo Vittorini, who survived the quake. He was one of the people who slept outside days before, and he says he was anesthetized with public assurances from these officials. So he took his wife and six-year-old daughter back indoors, and they slept indoors the night of the earthquake, and his wife and daughter were killed. So it's a group of people who are used to paying attention to warnings and are used to preparing themselves and sleeping outdoors when necessary. So it seems to be a failure of fairly important dimensions that a person went on television and told people that there wasn't any danger, whether or not The scientists themselves should be held responsible, and certainly it's a big question whether or not they should be sent to jail for this is another issue. There's outrage among the uh, global scientific community about this verdict, but uh, what about outrage in Italy? Is anybody angered? Well, yes, I'm sure many people are angered, not, you know, the least of which are the defendants. Uh, There was a petition that did the rounds, about 5,000 scientists signed it. This was uh, originally against the charges, and I'm sure there'll be another about the verdict. And, And what they say is this sort of verdict will have a chill effect on the scientific community, that scientists will not want to make any sort of prediction in the future for fear that they'll be legally responsible. So what now with the defendants? Will they go to jail now? 
No. In Italy, the legal system offers at least one appeal. Many of these types of rulings in Italy get overturned, if not on the first appeal, on the second appeal. And it's a different legal system. Oftentimes the appeal, it's a whole new trial. So I would be very surprised if this case doesn't go to appeal and at some point gets overturned. But these cases take years. Reporter Megan Williams in Rome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. In Jerusalem, new tensions are brewing over a small patch of land. Jews believe the Temple Mount is a spot where King Solomon's temple was built. Muslims call the area the Noble Sanctuary. They believe it's a place where Muhammad ascended into heaven. Today, it's the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Both Jews and Muslims revere it as a holy place. But Jews are not allowed to worship there. The restrictions have been in place for years. But some Jewish Israelis are now calling for freer access to the Temple Mount and the ability to pray there. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem. It might be the most contested piece of real estate in human history, but the Jewish Temple Mount, or Noble Sanctuary as Muslims know it, is open to tourists. On most mornings of the week, dozens of them line up to ascend to Jerusalem's holiest spot. I went there on a recent morning with Rabbi Chaim Richman. He's with a group called the Temple Institute, and he's been going up to the Temple Mount for 25 years. Most Israeli Jews don't come here because Israel's leading rabbis forbid it. And Richman says the Israeli government restricts Jewish access for fear of sparking riots. But every government feels the same way. It's like it's a powder keg. It's basically they're so sensitive to this that they're totally insensitive to Jewish sensitivity. Among the crowd of tourists, Richmond and the few Jewish men he was with stood out with their yarmulkes and beards. And as they entered the plaza next to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they were confronted by a young Palestinian man. He appeared to take issue with the presence of Jews. An Israeli police officer stepped in and calmed things down, and Richmond's group continued on their holy walking tour. Following close by was an Israeli cop, and one or two officials with the Islamic Waqf. They're the Islamic religious authorities who have some autonomy over the noble sanctuary and its mosques. Non-Muslims are not allowed to pray or display religious symbols here, and that is the main thing Richmond says he'd like to see changed. But see, these guys over here with the blue shirts, their, their job is to watch us very carefully. And if they suspect that we're, that we're praying, which again, the question is, how does it, how does it hurt them? Not, you know, am I causing, like, World War III? Like, Ahmedijan is threatening our, our destruction three times a day for five years. I mean, I didn't even build the Holy Temple. And I'm not even talking now about building the Holy Temple. I'm talking about the ability of a human being, you know, to be in a holy place and to be able to pray. Richmond's views used to be way outside the mainstream, but during recent Jewish holidays, Israeli police arrested about a dozen Jewish activists suspected of praying on the Temple Mount. One was a member of parliament. In the last year or so, more and more politicians, rabbis, and activists say that Jews should be allowed to pray on the Mount. Michael Freund is a columnist with the Jerusalem Post who recently visited the Temple Mount for the first time in years. He found it profoundly moving. He says the ban on Jews praying at the site needs to be lifted. In his latest column, Freund went even further, saying Israel's government should consider building a synagogue on the Temple Mount. This is about Israeli sovereignty, Freund says. We waited 2,000 years to reclaim the Temple Mount. Now that it is under Israeli control, 
we cannot allow it to slip through our fingers. I think it's time for Israel to reassert control over the area and to ensure free access to people of all religions. Israeli lawmakers have floated legislation that would compel Israel's police force to protect the rights of Jews to pray on the Temple Mount. Mohammed Hussein is the Mufti of Jerusalem and the senior-most Islamic leader in the Palestinian Authority. Hussein told me the Noble Sanctuary, or Al-Haram al-Sharif, is a Muslim holy site, and Jews should not be allowed to pray there. It's a problem. A tourist doesn't have any intentions other than tourism. But the Jewish groups that go to the sanctuary have a hidden agenda. They want to kick out the Muslim worshippers and destroy our holy site so they can build their temple. We will not accept this. Another controversial proposal being talked about by Temple Mount activists is to divide Jerusalem's holiest site between Jewish and Muslim control. Palestinian legislator Hanan Ashrawi says that would be a disaster. I think this is extremely insidious and extremely dangerous because ultimately whatever happens to the Haram al-Sharif, it's a signal that that's the end of any type of peace or any type of coexistence, not just with the Palestinians, both Muslim and Christian, but also with the Arab and Islamic worlds. This is not an issue of freedom of worship, says Israeli lawyer Daniel Seidman. There's been a delicate status quo in place on the Temple Mount, noble sanctuary, he says, that's been maintained by every Israeli prime minister since 1967. Seidman says changing that status quo would be a form of pyromania. It's not an accident that this policy that is being proposed has been rejected by Menachem Begin and Ariel Sharon and Ehud Ulmert, who are not exactly members of the ACLU. At the end of our tour, Rabbi Richmond turned to walk backwards, away from the mosques and back into the stone alleyways of Jerusalem's old city. That's to show reverence for the Holy of Holies, the place Jews believe held the Ark of the Covenant during the first temple period. Richmond's insistence on visiting and praying on the Mount is not supported by the majority in Israel, but as a crowd of Jewish schoolboys ran past us, he seemed to take heart from the fact that more and more Jews are coming around to his way of thinking. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. When I'm not in the studio and the ocean water in New England is warm, like three months of the year, I like to hit the surf. I've caught waves right in Boston and along the usual spots along the shores of Cape Cod, but never in Iran, so I'm eager to talk with 26-year-old Irish surfer, Iski Britain. Now, you surfed Iran, uh, Iski. Now a documentary is coming out about that trip you took. First of all, how were the waves? Actually, the waves we found were surprisingly fun. We went during our summer period when it tends to be pretty flat in Europe, and that's when uh, there's a small swell window in Iran with the Indian monsoon season, and it generated some pretty fun waves. Right. So this is a swell coming off the Indian Ocean. It, it sounds like fun, but it's actually a serious story that's got fun as a part of it. And it kind of raises more yeah. questions than just how high the waves are. What was it like uh, surfing in Iran, being a woman, uh, and there you are carrying around a surfboard on the beach? I know. 
it's pretty unusual. It's definitely not your typical surf destination. I guess I wanted to show how surfing can not only translate across cultures, um, but also across those so-called gender boundaries. And, you know, part of that being a woman surfing in Iran, you have to surf with your entire body covers, including your head. So it's a bit tricky, especially in 30 to 40 um, degree desert heat. How many people surf in Iran? I mean, men and women. Well, when we were there, we didn't see anyone else surfing. There isn't really any surf culture there, and, and everyone we met the locally hadn't seen surfing before. So it was basically a case of having to drive along the coast and stop and jump in the water and try out waves. <laughs> well, that's also kind of nice, too, because you don't get crowded out uh, in any of the waves. Uh, did you get last a lot of questions? Yeah, people were really curious. and I suppose they didn't know how they would, would react. I mean, the first evening we surfed outside this... Um, Tying on the on the south coast called Chabahar, and um, between fixing my hijab, trying to avoid the rocks, and indecent exposure, this crowd had gathered to watch a pretty unusual spectacle. Well, tell me about your your wetsuit because it's referred to as a hijab wetsuit. What what does that even look like? Well, I don't. I basically just customize it myself. I mean, I I googled hijabs for surf, and it turns out there's this company making them for Muslim women in sport. So it's lycra and fits over my head like a hood, I suppose. And then I wear just like a long sleeve rash vest, baggy board shorts, um, leggings. <laughs> so it's, it's quite a lot of to deal with when you're out in the surf. I mean, the interesting thing about a wetsuit is that, indeed, it covers the whole body, but it also reveals telling contours of the body. I mean, is, is that, does that pass muster in Iran for women who might be interested in surfing? Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's, that's the tricky part, especially when you're in a watery environment. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it is possible to do it as a you know a Muslim woman in surfing somewhere like Iran. Do you think uh, hidden behind the hijabs uh, in Iran are some women surfers with some skills, maybe? I think so. I mean, quite inspiring people. I mean, how they're able to cope and get on with things in such challenging circumstances. And, you know, there are like, Iranian women doing a lot in sport, just, well, not in surfing, but uh, it, surfing, I suppose, is such a hugely growing sport, too, and it offers a lot of opportunities, and I suppose a sense of freedom and escapism is really attached to that way of life, surfing. Mm, I mean, that, that's what a lot of surfers said. I'm wondering, though, as you're out there in, in the Indian Ocean off of uh, the coast of southern Iran, floating in the water by yourself, if it represents freedom, why aren't more people doing it? in a lot of cases, you know, I grew up in Ireland and I was pretty much born into the surfing way of life. And also there, there was no one surfing when I was five or six. And, uh, and opportunities changed for people then. And I suppose, too, it's also you get inspired by seeing other people and what they can do. And maybe it's, that is a start for change. Well, Eski Britain, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. You can watch Irish surfer Eski Britain in her hijab wetsuit catching a wave in Iran. The video's at theworld.org. Now, for today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for the home of the first Native American saint. Kateri Tekakwita was formally declared a saint by the Catholic Church yesterday. She was born in 1656 and lived a deeply spiritual but brief life. She was just 24 when she died. We're looking for the name of a Mohawk reservation where you can visit her tomb and where hundreds turned out yesterday to watch the canonization ceremony broadcast from the Vatican. The community's name relates to its location along the St. Lawrence River in Quebec, Canada.
actually means by the rapids, and uh, that's basically a pretty good description. We're uh, located right along the rapids uh, near Montreal. So what's the name of the reservation where the saint, known locally as Lily of the Mohawks, is buried? The answer is coming up. is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? Is it all in the DNA or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius? Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Wednesday night at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Back now to Kateri Tekakwita who was formally declared yesterday the first Native American saint by the Catholic Church. We wanted to know where she was buried back in the 17th century, a place that is today a Mohawk reservation. Joe Delarond is a spokesman for the Mohawk Council there. And Joe, tell us where Kateri Tekakwita is buried. Actually, she's buried in the St. Francis Xavier Mission, the church here in the middle of Gahnawake, right along the river. Her tomb is right inside the church. You know, so obviously lots of people have been coming by for the uh, celebratory mass. Uh, it was just the standing room only. So you, you mentioned the name of our uh, geo-quiz answer today. That would be Kanawage there along the banks of the St. Lawrence River in Quebec, Canada. Joe, tell us about the significance of the standing room only ceremony yesterday. We have about 200 of our people that actually went to the Vatican to participate there. But uh, over here, we uh, was standing room only. Every nook and cranny of the, the church was filled. And I think what was most astounding was we had people visiting our church from all over the place. And I mean, they made the trip. One lady came from, flew from Germany to be here in Gahnawage for the Mass. It was just amazing how many people wanted to share in the experience uh, with, with our people. It was a nice feeling because, yeah, you had the Native and non-Natives standing side by side and to celebrate such a, a nice event, a beautiful event. For you, Joe, what was the miracle of Kateri's life? Well, I, I grew up in a, in a home where you prayed to Kateri, even though she wasn't necessarily a saint yet, but you, you prayed for intervention, hoping that she'd be able to help you out. And uh, I guess the uh, official sainthood came after the young boy out in the Pacific Northwest credited the miracle there with putting her over the top. And what was that miracle that you referred to in the Pacific Northwest? There was a young boy uh, who was about six or eight years old. He was playing basketball. He got a cut on his lip and he contracted flesh-eating disease. And it wasn't going very well and medical intervention wasn't working. So the family resorted to prayer and they prayed to Cattery. Lo and behold, it stopped and there was no medical explanation for it. Uh, he made a recovery, and he was actually one of the people who was in the Vatican yesterday. What do you think in Kateri's life would uh, young Mohawks today kind of take inspiration from? Uh, and that's a good question, because we certainly weren't there in uh, in the 1660s. And right, 1670s. this is a while ago. Yeah, that's a while back. But uh, the fact that she was so single-minded in her devotion, you know, no matter what, she persevered, despite the fact that 
you know, there were a lot of obstacles uh, at the time. Catholicism certainly wasn't in favor, and she persevered and said, I'm going to do this, and uh, and she did. Her legacy is that she's a woman of peace and that she's, you know, made a name for herself, but also for, for all Native people. For us, she's always been a saint, but it's certainly nice to see it in, you know, officially, St. Cattery. It's uh, something that, you know, I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Joe Dillaronde, a spokesman for the Mohawk Council of Ganawake in Quebec. Thank you. All right. Take care. Finally today, most musicians live by the simple truth about their industry. You have to promote and promote and promote and promote. And when the record company releases your album, you sell it. Unless you're Paul Weller. Yes, that Paul Weller, the mod father, the front man for 70s iconic English punk band The Jam, and then later The Style Council. Well, next month, The Jam, A Gift, super deluxe box set, is being released. It's to celebrate the 30th anniversary of The Jam's final studio album. Here's a live version of The Jam, classic, Beat Surrender, from that new CD box set. The four-disc set includes the remastered original albums, and for jam completists, there are also demos and live versions of some of the band's classic tunes. In advance of the release, Paul Weller agreed to be interviewed, but it became clear pretty quickly during my chat with him how Weller felt about the re-release of the jam material. It could be a really poignant, maybe even bittersweet reminder for a lot of fans who'll hear it again. Why re-release it? Well, that you'd have to ask my record company. Oh, I see. You didn't have any because, uh, anything to do uh, with that. Well, so what do you think I mean, about that, the idea? <clears throat> well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? You know, because I'm always glad to see my records being released. You know, whatever shape or form it is. Uh, but there's an awful lot of it, really, and uh, I don't know. We just seem to live in a very nostalgic sort of world. On I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it really because. Uh, do you, you reject know. the nostalgia? Well, I'm just happy doing what I do now, you know, and uh, I like doing, I like playing my new songs and um, and moving forward, you know. So I'm not a particularly nostalgic person, you know. I don't sit around thinking about how great the times were back in the day and all that stuff. I like now, you know. I've always liked now, and um, so I don't kind of get the nostalgia thing, you know. My life didn't sort of stop in 1982, you know. I'm kind mm. of. Uh, I'm still pressing forward with it, really. And uh, so it's hard for me to understand the whole nostalgia. It's hard for me to understand bands getting back together after 40 years or 20 years or whatever it is. And uh, But there certainly, you know, seems to be a market for all that. But I, but it's not something I can particularly comment on because I don't understand it. Right, which makes for a very awkward segue to this next question. You've said that you'd never be part of a jam reunion. Um, mm. But this music, obviously, the record company thinks it still gives fans so much pleasure. Why not perform it together? Well, you know, I mean, I play some of my old songs, you know, the songs that I wrote <clears throat> all those years ago, and I play them as part of my new set, and uh, and which is fine for me, you know. But to go back and revisit the, the band and, and get back together after all, those, after all that time and to be 
all of us in our 50s and trying to recapture something would just be ridiculous you know we'd look ridiculous and sound ridiculous and uh, <laughs> and it just does no appeal to me whatsoever i like doing what i do now you know what makes you the most happy these days uh to see the smiles on my children's faces and uh and being in the sunshine as well paul weller very good to speak with you thank you so much it's a pleasure yeah thank you As Paul Weller said, he's happy with what he's doing now. What he's doing now is writing and recording new music. His latest album was called Sonic Kicks. Here's a cut from it called That Dangerous Age. You can see the video for Paul Weller's That Dangerous Age at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for joining us. And every chance you get to ride the fall in his car. He left his sugars in his coffee. He was a joke in the office. He's told to stay up late. He's on a much higher ride. And he looks at guns up the World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.